Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, March 16th. Not many of us had heard the term special rapporteur until recently. We speak with Brent Cameron, former deputy mayor of Central Frontenac, Ontario, and current trade policy advisor for an explanation as to where the term comes from and what he thinks of the decision to appoint former Governor General David Johnston to the role. Shelter is a basic need and right of everyone. With the high cost of living, how can we accurately define affordable in terms of our monthly expenses and how do we ensure that no one is left out in the cold? We talk about it with Dr. Ron Kneebone, Professor of Economics and the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. It's a very creative way to make a difference in the lives of Calgarians in need. We catch up with Betty Jo Kaiser, Communications Coordinator with the Calgary Food Bank, for details on this year's construction event taking place this week at South Centre Mall. And finally, with the high price of meat these days, ribeye steak might not be an option on your shopping list, but can you take a cheaper cut and make it taste expensive? We discuss with Greg Keller, owner of Calgary's Bonton Meat Market. What is a special rapporteur and why will this now person who's chosen be the one to investigate alleged Chinese election? interference. Joining us to talk about this special rapporteur position and the person chosen for it in the Canadian context is Brent Cameron, former municipal councillor and deputy mayor in central Frontenac in Ontario, former staffer to a provincial member in Ontario and current trade policy advisor with Concierge Strategies in Toronto. Good morning to you Brent, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. And can we break down again, because I think a lot of people are still quite confused. This is something very new to our lexicon. Can you explain the concept of the special rapporteur? Okay. Uh, well, it's really a fancy way of saying independent expert. It's something very new in the Canadian context. We've never actually had one here, but it's not a new term. It's been around for about 40 years. It's been used by the United Nations Human Rights Council, and I think at uh, current count, there's at least 57 special rapporteurs in uh, working in various jurisdictions and on various subject matters. So it's just not something that we've heard of yeah. in the public limelight so much, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but we've heard uh, the name before who's been appointed, David Johnson, former Governor General. Tell us about the, this choice, how it was come to, and who was involved in the decision-making process? Well, those are good questions, because I don't think we really know. Uh, we, we know that David Johnston was picked. We know that uh, that was a decision taken within the Prime Minister's office. Uh, they telegraphed the idea of having an eminent Canadian who would serve in the role. Uh, one of the concerns that I have and others have is about political neutrality. Mm. And, and I think that even just picking an eminent Canadian opens the door, if you will. Uh, a special rapporteur, if you look at the job description that the UN has, there, there are two qualities the person has to have. They have to be an expert in the subject matter, and they have to be politically neutral. For the UN, that's easy, because if there's an issue in you send not a citizen of that country to investigate Using an eminent Canadian, I, I think would be hard-pressed to find anybody who has any knowledge of electoral law, institutional law, human rights law, and the various other issues of geopolitics doesn't actually have current affiliation with a political party in this country. Aperture in terms of an other 
sort of job then. It, it, you're, you're quoted in an article uh, talking about the possibility of Canada having a special rapporteur for religious freedom and beliefs. Why is this a necessity, do you think? Well, I, I, uh, I don't think, I'm, I'm not sure uh, for, for that type of issue, I, I, am, I, I think that there are, there are areas where the government can have a special rapporteur. I don't, I don't particularly uh, have an opinion with regard to that subject mm. matter. I, for, for my purpose, looking specifically about the issue of interference from the Chinese government, I think you need somebody who is neutral, someone who is outside the uh, Ottawa bubble or any political bubble in this country, and an external, possibly looking at someone with a background in law uh, from Australia, New Zealand, the UK, a country that has the same political system that we do. Australia has gone through a lot of the things that we've gone through with regard to uh you know, alleged interference with the People's Republic of China. There's a lot of subject matter that they've already dealt with, and I think that they could come in as an honest broker to all parties concerned. Let's uh, break this down, though, because, again, to me, the even the term special rapporteur is, is new to me, but we, of course, know David Johnson, a former governor general, will be taking on that role. Do we know about the process? Do we know, uh, you know, how long something like this, an investigation like this will take and how things will play out? Well, we only know what uh, in the press release uh, from the Prime Minister and uh, the idea that it might be done this spring. Uh, the problem is we don't have a job description for a special rapporteur in the Canadian context, in this context. And so uh, what my article really focused on, in the absence of information, well, what does a special rapporteur do? Does it already exist? And if you look at what they do, they have a very wide remit. They, they are not really constrained by a national government. They're told to go into an area, talk to everybody who has interest in the issue. And that, that could include government, but it could also include uh, non-governmental actors. It could involve talking to academics. It could be talking to people um, who are directly impacted, people that you know, for example, ran in a given riding and feel that there was some sort of influence, undue influence that was exerted. They have a wide, they have a wide remit. And when they report, they're able to share that report not only with the government and re make recommendations, but that report would be public. It would go everywhere. So if you're going to do it like the UN does it, Mr. Johnston, he gets to set his own parameters for what he does, he gets to talk to anybody he wants to talk to, and he gets to release a report that goes fully public that all of us can see. Now, I understand that there would be some issues with regard to national security, so there may be some vetting, but ideally, it's something that he gets to decide, he gets to set the tempo, and... Uh, Thanks so much for breaking it down. Sorry, Brent, we're losing your connection with you, but sure. thank you so much for breaking it down this morning. Really appreciate your time. Not a problem. Thank you. Thank you. Brent Cameron is a trade policy advisor with Concierge Strategies in Toronto. How do we ensure every Canadian has access to shelter despite the high cost of living these days? 
Joining us to discuss a new report from the UFC School of Public Policy looking at inflation versus housing affordability is Ron Kneebone, professor in the Department of Economics and the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Ron. Good morning. Well, can you tell us more about the housing hardship concept that the Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation is researching at this point? Yeah, it's uh, it's questioning um, what we've often used as a measure of housing affordability. And I think most people have heard of this before. The, old, the adage is that if you spend more than 30% of your before-tax income on housing, then it's probably not very affordable to you. You're spending too much. Uh, and and what CMHC is doing is, is asking whether or not that's the appropriate measure. And it's interesting when you look into the history of it, that measure comes from, well, it's totally arbitrary. So uh, most people think it comes from an old expression from the 19th century that said, one week's pay for one month's rent. So there was a belief that, and it was just a rule of thumb, that you should spend about 25% of your income on rent. Um, and in Canada, we used to believe the rule was 20%. In, and then on, in the 1950s, we increased the 25%. And then sometime in the 1980s, we decided it was 30%. But it's totally arbitrary. And it's just a rule that's been picked out of the air. So CMHC is asking whether or not that's the right measure. And what they're looking at is something called what they're calling the housing hardship concept. And it looks at the issue in a different way. It says, let's figure out how much you need to spend on, on the basics, food, transportation, utilities, that kind of thing, and see what's left over to pay for rent. And, the, and so we're kind of turning it around, saying that if you can't pay for these other basics, then you can't afford rent either. And that's a different way of looking at it, and it gives you a much different answer. And how? so then would that relate to sort of policies aimed at addressing low-income individuals and families that, you know, are struggling right now then, if we look at it in that flipped way? Absolutely, because there's a lot of public policies that we use to try to help people with limited incomes. So, for example, you might your income might be so low that you, we try to put you into public housing. Now, there's a rule that says you can't get into public housing unless you're spending more than 30%. See, that's the old rule now. Unless you're spending 30% or more for your income on rent. But if we now change that definition, and I can tell you how it's going to affect Albertans, then there will be fewer people available or eligible to get into public housing using this new measure. And, and that's true because the new measure says in Alberta, whereas under the 30% rule, about 10% of households are having difficulty affording housing. Under the new rule the CMHC is looking at, only 6% of households are, eligible, are having difficulty affording housing. So it makes a really big difference. And if we start to use that new rule, it's going to have dramatic effects on the sorts of public policies we introduce to help people with limited incomes. Speaking with Dr. Ron Kneebone, professor in the Department of Economics and the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. And uh, Dr. Kneebone, I, I know that uh, affordable housing is an issue uh, across the globe in, in uh, countless countries. Uh, but I'm wondering if, it, if it's any worse here in Canada or do we have any unique challenges that other countries do not face? We... 
Well, that's a really good question. I think that's a, it's a bit of a universal problem is that uh, – and I think one of the explanations for the problem is that our incomes are different, that the – our inc- average incomes in Canada and other countries, too, are rising over time. But there's a fraction of the population whose incomes are not keeping up, and they're not, their incomes are not rising. And so what we're seeing is that builders of rental units and housing are catering to the needs of those people whose incomes are rising, and they're not providing housing that can be afforded by people with relatively low incomes. And so more and more people are finding at the low end of the income spectrum are finding it hard to afford afford housing. And that's a really important issue because if you don't have housing, then you're probably going to have bad health and you're probably going to find it really hard to find employment. So it's a really important issue that governments need to think hard about how we help those people who are having difficulty affording housing. Very much so. Thank you so much, Ron. Appreciate your time this morning. You're welcome. Thanks. Dr. Ron Nebone, professor in the Department of Economics and the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. Construction is back. Today, Thursday, March 16th, the 17th annual Build Day for the event that brings together teams of engineers, designers, and architects to create extraordinary structures made from canned food items. Tell us all about it. We are joined by the legend herself, communications coordinator with the Calgary Food Bank, Betty Jo Kaiser. Hello, Betty Jo. Well, hello. Welcome. Thank you so much. I got to tell you, it is a big deal for me to be on the FM band now. Like, you guys sound so fantastic. Love QR on the FM. Yeah, what, pardon? (laughs) We just love QR on the FM. The sound is rich, and I, you know, I'm always bounce, 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 and I land on QR, and it's like the angels. That's usually you guys in the morning. Okay, maybe I'm laying it on a little thick, but honestly... She's never been described as that. (laughs) My mom. No, I really, really love it on the the FM band. Congratulations. Thank you, Betty Joe. Appreciate it. Now, this is something that has been a long time running. I had the opportunity to cover when I worked in television because it's so visual. Yes. It's great team building. Yes. Oh, and it helps the Calgary Food Bank. Tell us about Canstruction, Betty Joe. Okay, so it's a fun event that takes place. Most of the builds are at South Centre. There's one company, there wasn't quite enough room, and they built downtown. Uh, that's Bantrell. And the nine teams are coming together. The theme is Alice in Wonder Can. <laughs> and starting this morning, and they usually wrap up around 4.35 o'clock today, the uh, structures will all be built, and then they're judged. And it's so fun to see over 39,000 cans of food, and most of them are core items, are used in these structures. At the end of March, they all come back to the Calgary Food Bank, make their way into emergency food hampers. So it's a great cause that way. Uh, If you want to come down and check it out, they're going to be on display, like I said, the whole uh, month of March, the rest of March. Please bring donations. We've got boxes down there. Please bring some um, non-perishable food items because we need to get those, those hampers Constantly, constantly. So the companies that jump in to, to make these, the construction itself, the they're yeah. donating the items that they use to build. Yes, I yes. See. They So they'll say, okay, I want to build, last year was a, they built, somebody built a frog. We want to build a frog. Well, we're going to need 10 cans that look like this, that are this high and this color. So two pallets of tuna. And then we're going to need, you know, a thousand cans that are this size and this, whatever, half a pallet of corn. 
So that's how that all comes together. Brilliant. And we have two schools too, which is really neat. Junior high schools come together. These kiddos learn and they've got some, they do a really good job too. So it's a fun, fun day. And I mentioned the team building. I know you've been down there. I've seen you buzzing around South Center when they're setting things up and, and getting things prepped. What is that process like when you've got a team? And I'm not sure if there's a, a case of having too many cooks in the kitchen. Should you have 20 people down there or do you see like five or six just very much dialed in building these things? Andy, you should see the prep that goes into it. Really? They have it all. They've all done the pre-work. They've all done pre-builds to make sure they know exactly like what to runs. do. You bet. And actually, we wanted to do a little pre-promotion on the socials. So we sent a note and said, hey, can we come watch you build? And they're like, no. (laughs) The city of Calgary, though, they did say you may come for a sneak peek. Don't reveal our structure. Don't reveal any of our secrets. So we did get a little bit of a sneak peek. But it is, it's science. Like, it's incredible. And some of the, some of them, yeah, they have people that are unloading the the cans and kind of getting them preset. But yeah, like they are down to like the millimeter. It's really cool. This is a serious competition. Okay, that's the fun side of it. But the serious side of it is you need these food items to be donated because the need is just getting greater and greater, right? That's right. We're uh, the the need is up twenty four percent year over year. So January February of twenty twenty two, we distributed over seventeen thousand six hundred hampers. The same time period this year, over twenty one. 21,000 hampers were distributed in that time. So, yeah, the need continues to grow, and we need the food. And I know it's tough, but if you're at the grocery store and you see a screaming deal on some of your favorite items, please grab them and throw them in the bins because we need it all right now. And you mentioned these incredible companies coming together, a couple of schools. You want to go down and check it out with your family and friends, grab a coffee, walk around the construction displays. Get your steps in. Uh, get your steps in. Yes. Right. I'm a mall walker at <laughs> South Center. It's a, that's one of my claims to fame. Excellent. So every square inch. But um, because people might be, um, you know, a, a little bit uh, un- unaware of the necessities, if you're going to be stopping and going to South Center, can you give us a list of just some suggested items that people are running through? Absolutely. Can't tomatoes comes to mind because it's such a versatile food and it crosses so many different cultures. Um, Newcomers to Calgary uh, increases for a big number of our visits to the Calgary Food Bank. Canned tomatoes can be used in all different kinds Mm. of cooking. Uh, We need the peanut butter. We like the cereals. The pasta, if you could do whole grain, even better. Whole grain pasta. Like healthy uh, stuff. Healthy stuff if you can. Canned beans. Mm. Like, they're such a great source of protein and, uh, like, chickpeas and any kind of pulses or beans, any of those. Just remember, folks, when you're buying those, give them a really good rinse. Uh, We found this out from our dietitian. The can of beans, once you've opened them, gets rid of any extra sodium and, fun fact, the gassiness, too. Well, I know. Why'd you look at me when you said that? I don't know what's going on over here. I don't know why I had to share that little tidbit, but because it's such a good source of protein and fiber. Um, So, yeah. Wash them when you take them out of the can. Yeah. Rinse the room. Peanut butter. Uh, like I said, cereal, about, like whole grain crackers. Do you, do you, what about, uh, you know, personal hygiene, baby food, diapers? Like, oh. is there also like a huge need for that kind of stuff too? Uh, yes. Baby uh, formula, you guys. We need, for, we run out of formula every single week. Huh. We need formula and we need uh, diapers all the time. And another easy, simple way to support us is if you can go online to calgaryfoodbank.com and where it's clicked, it says donate. Mm-hmm. Um, if you if you are in a position where you can donate cash, we can distribute $5 worth of food 
for each dollar that's donated. Oh, that's incredible. Huge. So you're running around town, you think you're too busy, you're not too busy to check out calgaryfoodbank.com. Uh, Betty Jo Kaiser, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll see you down in South Center. Thanks, guys. Betty Jo Kaiser, communications coordinator with the Calgary Food Bank. I love steak, but I've never eaten more ground beef than I have in the last year. I'm getting pretty good in my burger game, which was kind of left to the sidelines. Steak and meat in general expensive, and food inflation certainly isn't helping. This morning, though, we're going to find out how we can make the cheaper cuts of meat taste pricier, taste more rich and flavorful, and how to get the best bang for your buck. Who better than Greg Keller, owner of Bonton Meat Market, for some advice. Good morning to you, Greg. Well, good morning. How are you guys this morning? Good, good. And Greg, you and I have stood, you know, side by side at the grill in the past. And, and I know that you know your way around cuts of meat. So uh, prices are so high. What, what's behind it, Greg? It's, it's, it's beyond inflation when it comes to meat, isn't it? Oh, Andrew, there's, I mean, that's, we could do a three-hour to show on that. There's so many variables that go into this. Um, number one, if, to be honest with you, the actual price and cost of meat to us really hasn't changed in the last year. But what you're seeing is the actual cost of doing business for everybody has gone through the roof. Mm. I mean, you go to a restaurant, take a look at what it's costing you now to go eat out. And I mean, I totally understand. I know their costs. And that's what's happening to all of us. So unfortunately, it has to get built in or businesses don't survive. Well, Greg, we know the beauty of having a, a, a gorgeous piece of Alberta beef on our plate, but maybe that's just out of our price range at this particular moment. So what are some of the other cuts that you are offering up at Bonton that people might want to maybe just look for and maybe haven't purchased before? Do you know what you, can, you see is you can still have that gorgeous cut of meat, but one of the things that we're seeing is people are buying quality cuts, but they're just buying a little bit less meaning they've cut down their portion size. Um, like an example is we're selling a lot more things like a tri-tip roast, which is an absolutely beautiful piece of meat thrown on the barbecue. But you don't need that great big, you know, prime rib or something like that. It's half the price of it. You cook it a little bit differently. You actually serve it a little bit differently. And like I say, you can still find a lot of value in beef. Um, one of the things that we're really, really noticing is People are they're still buying the strip loins and the things like that, but maybe they're not getting that 12-ounce. Maybe they're just going to an 8-ounce mm. one, you know, that kind of thing, just to get that cost proportion down. And I think the other thing, Greg, that I've taken from you in the past, and, and then I think people who enjoy meat and enjoy grilling and uh, the whole experience, the prep work. Can you talk a bit about marinating and, and kind of maybe self-aging meat? How, how can we... Take that bonus and uh, econo- I don't want to say more economical, I don't want to say cheap, but more economical cut of meat and make it taste pristine. Well, that's one of the keys is you can buy, like, we're selling more, for example, and to be very honest with you, it's still my favorite cut of meat if I'm going to do a roast. We're selling more things like chuck roasts um, where you slow cook them, like either, either in your slow cooker or your oven or your crock pot or whatever you decide to do. And you just make that pull-apart roast. Well, that's a third of the price of a prime rib, you know, that kind of thing. And it's absolutely delicious. But you've got to put the prep time into it. It's not just going to be an instant go home and cook it in an hour. But there's so many other options. Like, we're, we're seeing a, an increase. Like, poultry is still very good value if you look at cost per serving. Um, sausages, uh, things like cutlets, you know. There, there is still value to be found. You don't have to buy that great big chunk of meat. 
when when we go into Bonton, you know, do you help us out? Because, I, I mean, I never know what's the best. I, I know a couple of cuts of steak that I want and I need, but beyond that, I'm not sure. But, you know, if we go in and we say, oh, I'm on a bit of a budget, what can you do for me? Absolutely. That, that's what we do. Um, like, it's not a cookie-cutter business. Yes, we've got a big display case. You know, we've got a 32-foot fresh meat case. But we custom cut whatever people want. You know, how thick, how big. You tell us what you're doing. We can advise you as to what cut of meat maybe you should be buying that you can still be completely, totally satisfied, but it's much more economical. Fantastic. Now, Greg, before we let you go, it's been a few years since I've, I've seen you and, and enjoyed uh, the food you offer up at Bonton. And you once said, you need a side beside just the meat. And I learned a lot from you that day. You can't just eat a hunk of meat. Uh, your potato salad, do you, you guys still stock that potato salad? <laughs> I just find it so funny. <laughs> you got this big meat business and everybody talks about potato salad. He's been talking uh, about it all morning, Greg. Do you know what, Andrew? Absolutely, we do. The one thing that through COVID, through everything else, we didn't change anything. Like the way we operate has not changed. And the product offerings we have has not changed. Do yourself a favor. Uh, if you have, mm. Put that on your bucket list if you've not been to Bonton. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Greg. We appreciate it because we all want to make that meat go further. We all want to enjoy our meals. Mm-hmm. And it's an expert like you that can help us out. Thank you so much. Anytime, my friend. Stuff. You guys take care. Too. That's Greg Keller, owner of Bonton Meat Market. Find out what they do online at Bonton, B-O-N-T-O-N, meatmarket.com.